Hello and welcome to episode 62 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the brain maggot, Shane Beeps. (laughs) I'm squiggly. I'm in your head. I'm stealing your thoughts. I'm never attacking. It's me, Shane Beeps. (laughs) <laughs> how's it going stan i'm doing great shane it's it's actually a mild winter day in chicago so i got a little bit of vitamin d from the sun and i'm feeling good yeah there's not really much of a winter this year is there oh we had a winter it's supposedly coming tomorrow this is really topical let's talk about the weather in chicago for a minute uh we're supposed to get a blizzard the next few days yeah hey, hey we are we are closing on a 40 all of us I've already closed. I've I've got a second mortgage on forty already. Because <laughs> I make jokes about mortgages. That's how forty I am. I asked about the weather. Hey, Dave. Mortgages are for closers. That's true. I do close them. Also with us, so you heard him. You love him. The senior edificer, Dave Harburger. Is it because I'm short? It's because you're old, senior. Did you call me SRAM because I'm short? I think you kind of look like him. What? You can you can do SRAM cosplay at the next SCG regional. Ah, <laughs> uh, new five hundred dollar an episode stretch goal unlocked. Oh man, that'd be so good. Your wife is really good with costumes too, Dave. She is. I don't know if she, I mean, yeah, why not? Let's just put some goggles on me and send me into kind of send me into a, a, a competition. Let's do this. It's Pioneer Week on the Dive Down as we kick off the show with a breakdown of the results from the SCG Indianapolis Pioneer Open. Then we dive into Orzov, SRAM, Auras and try to answer who wears the pants in Pioneer. Special thanks to our patron Alex W. for selecting the deck as the focus of this week's episode. But before we get into all that good stuff, let's take care of some housekeeping. Thanks to our newest patron, Justin, for joining the Dive Down Nation. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so via manatraders.com. Using code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word, get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. Or, of course, you can always check us out over at patreon.com slash thedivedown to support the show directly. And speaking of the Patreon, this week we have some really big announcements to make about some upcoming improvements to our Patreon. So don't skip this. Even if you're a member, you want to listen to this. So it's been a good amount of time since we started up the Patreon. And honestly, the amount of support we've received over the past you know six plus months from you all is just amazing. You've really kept the show afloat. You've allowed us to hire a professional editor, make pins, stickers, tokens, playmats, more. Um, however, we think we've come up with some even cooler benefits for both current and future patrons, and we think everyone's going to be really excited about these. So let's go over each tier you can join the Patreon at. So we're just going to go through all the tiers, talk about what you get, what what changes there are, and just stay with us for a minute, okay? So yeah, look. We know this isn't the most like compelling Magic the Gathering content, but in interest of being fair and clear with everybody, we just want to make sure it's out here in a place where people can find out about it easily. So please be patient with us. 
And I'll provide occasional color commentary throughout this process to make it more enjoyable for everyone, especially myself. Thank God. We're going to hide jokes in here. Secret, secret jokes. So uh, $1, the the lowest you can join, that's going to basically stay the same. That's for those who just want to help us be the best podcast we can be. It's the ticket into our super secret Slack server and onto the Patreon website feed. So that's where we can sometimes collect questions for guests we're going to have, poll ideas for future episodes, share sneak peeks of upcoming shows, things like that. So at $3, $3 a show, you get a ton of really cool stuff. You get a set of six pins. We might be adding some more in the near future. You get a sheet of dive down stickers that Dave designed. You get a signed copy of the card, the dive down from all the hosts. However, the change we're making is that now at $3, you also get access to our detailed show notes every Friday when we release the episode. So we're talking like 15 single spaced pages in a Google doc every week, y'all. Okay. This is not just like a few scattered sentences. We do a lot of notes every week and you're going to get them. You have to promise not to share excerpts from these. Yeah. Yeah. They're full of inside jokes, us ribbing each other. Sometimes I wrote, I write swear words. (laughs) (laughs) So in reality, we don't make any jokes in the notes because we're not that funny, but you get insight into our creative process. You have a reference to go back to each week. Um, $5 is where we're making the biggest and coolest change. So along with everything from the previous tiers, we're going to start providing early access to each week's episode. So instead of waiting till Friday morning to have to get the episode, patrons at this tier are going to get access as soon as we have the final file from our editor. Sometimes that's on Thursday. Sometimes that's on Wednesday, but as soon as it's ready, you're going to be able to hear it. And people at the $5 tier also receive sets of our custom illustrated tokens. You get Shane the Spirit, Dave the Elemental, Stan the Elf. And when we reach our $500 an episode stretch goal, which is pretty close now, $5 patrons are also going to be shipped a custom dive down deck box. Yeah. The other thing I would say is Sometimes we might give you the not final version of the show because <laughs> sometimes we make tiny edits afterwards and I think we'll probably still release those versions early to people. So if there are tiny mistakes, we'll probably release it even earlier. Yeah. So at $8, you get everything from the previous tiers, right? But you now also get the Patreon exclusive dive down playmat after being at this tier for four weeks. So we decided to remove the sleeve part of the stretch goal that used to be at this tier for a few reasons. One, we wanted to make the playmat slightly easier to get, but also we kind of realized that people don't really use one-off custom sleeves that often. Like for instance, we all keep all of our cards in the exact same sleeves so they can move between decks easily. You know, I wouldn't personally use a set of a hundred sleeves that anyone sent me for any of my decks. And we suspected that many of you wouldn't either. And also we're going to have to make like 2000 sleeves just for the initial order. So we felt like it wasn't really going to be that cost effective. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a massive minimum quantity for manufacturing sleeves. And we just felt like we weren't really going to get there in a way that made sense for everybody, especially if we wanted to keep the sleeves Patreon exclusive, because then Shane would have had about, (laughs) about 1700 sleeve uh, packs of sleeves in his home. So Dave is on his third mortgage. And we don't want to have to make him take out another one just for little slips of plastic. Exactly. The, the one thing I want to say real quick uh, about the playmat change is that the in order to get the physical benefits of the playmat, you have to be at the tier for four weeks. 
it's approximately the same amount of money as the people who got play mats from us in the past. So it's not like we suddenly discounted the price of mats. So don't feel like you overpaid or something. We uh, It's around the same amount. So just keep that in mind. Likewise, if you've been at $8 long enough that you would have qualified for the playmat at some point in the past, we're going to send you a playmat as a consolation prize. Yeah, we'll get one out to you. Don't worry about it. So we're completely removing the $12 tier, which is where the playmat used to be. We're going to communicate with our current $12 patrons to talk about how you can transition off into a different tier, whether that's lower or higher. Uh, Speaking of higher, our final tier, uh, $15 an episode, still around for our most generous supporters. I'm still completely surprised that there are as many of you as have been. Uh, This is the tier where you can work with us to craft a custom episode topic every six months. So like today's episode, uh, you know, Alex, we reached out to him. We were like, hey, what are you interested in? What do you want to talk about? Uh, we, we we got to the SRAM Oris thing. We were like, that sounds awesome. Let's dive into it. And Alex is happy. We're happy. And we totally hit the zeitgeist because there's a lot of SRAM Oris content around this week. But anyway. My gosh. Um, so ultimately... We're really hoping that these are exciting benefits that citizens of the Dive Donation can look forward to every week, rather than just be kind of like a one-and-done swag drop. So if you're paying $3, you're paying $5, you know you have something awesome uh, that you get a benefit of every every week. So if that sounds cool to you, if you're interested in joining the Dive Donation, go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Dive Down. Wait, that's how you spell Patreon? P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I've been ending up on a tequila website this whole time. Well, Stan, uh, that's why you're not a member of the Dive Down Nation. (laughs) We also do plan on making more merchandise for patrons, as well as possible non-patrons in the coming months. I'm always DMing my co-hosts like, guys, I have an idea for a killer app. Dave constantly trying to convince us to make beanies, hats, sweaters, and, and fanny packs. Yep. SRAM beanie babies, maybe. I don't know. That's a piece of licensed property. I'm not sure we'll get an, a clear to make a, a a SRAM beanie baby, but maybe maybe we could hack something together. <laughs> a bean-filled child. Mm. But with all that fun stuff out of the way, let's get back into the thing that makes Dive Down awesome. Our prearranged sections, starting with Dave at the news desk this week. All right, so this week we're going to hop down to what feels like every Magic player's home away from home, and that is Indianapolis, Indiana, the nexus <laughs> of competitive REL Magic tournaments. The true center of the Midwest. It, I mean, definitely feels like there's a tournament there every weekend. Uh, we're going to talk about this pre- past week, Star City Games Pioneer Open. Yes, this is the, this is the first non-team uh, Pioneer Open. Wow, I I didn't quite realize that. That's awesome. I knew it had been a couple of weeks since we had seen, uh, since we had had an event this big. So it was good to see something come back. We had a week off in between this event and the Pro Tours and Shane's victory at at uh, Grand Prix Phoenix. Um, I think what's really interesting about Pioneer right now is kind of what's gone on the last couple of weeks is that it feels a little bit like Pioneer has reached a crossroads, a bit of an inflection point. Maybe some people, you know, coming out of the Pro Tours and the Grand Prix into this new phase where we're looking at a lot of different combo decks and cards powered by cards from Theros Beyond Death. 
And as often happens when metagames evolve into a place like this, there's been a decent amount of outcry about how the a format that was promising six weeks ago or a month ago has suddenly become, quote unquote, as degenerate as modern. But first off, don't talk about my modern like that. <laughs> Second, it's a little, you know, a little true. That, that things are getting a little fraught in, in Pioneer right now. And so I think that, you know, in that context, Star City rolls into Indy to show us what the likes of teams like RAW Hobbies, BCW Supplies, Lotus Box, and others are doing with the format right now. So the best data points that we have to look at from Star City Games, you know, aside from watching the coverage itself, are, are kind of a few different things. So looking at day one, they did not do anything to release the day one metagame or the, the full metagame or anything like that. But we can take a look at the day one standings at the end of round nine to see kind of what the 9-0 and 8-1 decks from day one were. And I think there's some interesting stuff. So there were 14 players who were either 9-0 or 8-1 after day one. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of breakdown about who those, who those decks are. Uh, the first deck I want to talk about, I know the deck that everybody's thinking about is Demir Inverter, which out of those 14 decks uh, were three of those 14 decks. So a, around uh, a little less than 25% of the 9-0 or 8-1 metagame at the end of day one was Demir Inverter. And it felt like watching the tournament that there was a lot of Inverter on camera all day, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Including Inverter Mirrors. So many Inverter Mirrors. So many. Yeah. And two players actually went 9-0. Pete Ingram and Ben Weinberg. Both went 9-0 on day one with the Demir Inverter. And, little spoiler, they actually played each other in the finals of the tournament later on. So they they didn't go undefeated on day two, but they definitely uh, went undefeated day one. The other notable person at the top of this list was Collins Mullen, who is on uh, Demir Inverter and was fourth out of the day one standings. The next bucket of day one kind of top tier decks is Spirits. So there were two Bants and two blue-white versions from team members of Lotus Box, Zan and Jeremy in particular, um, were playing the blue-white version that they had shared with their Patreon before they came to the tournament. The most notable thing to me about these, the Lotus Box deck had three main deck mystical disputes. Oh my gosh. If that doesn't tell you that they're gaming the meta... I don't know what does. It's interesting because um, I joined the Lotus Box Patreon this week. And so I saw the first version of the deck that uh, Zan posted. And then last minute change, they took out all of the curious obsessions. They put in some mystical disputes. And there you go. I think that it was probably a good choice for the weekend. Got to dispute those digs, you know? Just crazy. Yeah, Absolutely. So the next bucket, the next most represented deck in that 14 was two mono-white Heliod Devotion decks. And then finally, we had several one-ofs. We had a mono-black, a Boros Heroic deck, a Sultai Delirium deck, a blue-white control deck, and a Golgari Aggro deck. Now, two shout-outs here. One is the Sultai Delirium deck was piloted by our new best friend, Bill Caminos, who I know is still not listening. <laughs> Come on. But just a reminder, Bill's the guy who got two top eights at the Energy Series in Indianapolis last week. And now he goes into day two of the SEG Open in Indianapolis at 8-1. What a heater. What a Hoosier. 
I think he might be from Ohio. I, t- I, I checked him out on Twitter. Seems like a nice guy. And then second was, I think, the most kind of surprising and interesting deck on the list, other than Boris Heroic, but nobody wants to hear me talk about Feather again, <laughs> is uh, the Golgari Aggro deck, which is sort of uh, alternately known as Golgari Stompy as well. Yeah. Shane, do you want to give people a reminder of kind of what is in this deck? Certainly. Um, so primarily this deck is really uh, kind of a, the base green Stompy deck that was around for a while where it kind of has the mana elves, your big creatures like Lovestruck Beast, uh, Steel Leaf Champion, Galta Primal Hunger, uh, Ronus for some pump, uh, Rishkar for some more pump with some counters, Yorvo Lord of Garenbrig. You know, it has a bunch of green mana and sometimes... It has stuff like the Great Henge, which is just absurd when you stick it. Uh, it's it's kind of it's a lot of text, but basically, when you put a creature into play, it gets a one-one counter and you draw a card. But it costs a lot of mana unless you have a strong creature on the battlefield, which you typically do. Like a Rotting Registor, for example, which is a 7-6 that costs 3 that lets you play Great Henge for 2. Yes, yeah, so Dave got to the one of the key black cards in the deck, and in fact the only black card in the main deck typically, which is Rotting Registor. Um, the, the downside to Rotting Registor is in your upkeep you have to discard a card, but you typically get so much benefit from having just a 7 six on let's say turn two if you have a mana elf out that you're not really that worried about it you can just maybe toss uh, an extra land or a less essential creature now that's a zombie yeah that's a zombie i do think it's interesting that the stats on this creature alone make up for the fact that there's nothing in this deck to compensate for the discard clause yeah it's got no graveyard synergies at all yeah, I mean, the only thing you could potentially look at is say, like, I have four main deck scavenging ooze. So if I pitch like extra mana dorks, I can eat them with the scavenging ooze to kind of gain some life. So that's about it. Um, and then the sideboard takes advantage of some of the black mana where you get things like Thoughtseize. Uh, this deck is running Stay in the Mind to take advantage of the creatures with the Convoke. Uh, Golgari Charm, Fatal Push, it can cast a Ley Line for actual black mana if it wants to, rather than just have it in the opener. So I think this deck is good. What the, the main thing that this deck does, right, is many of the creatures either just simply attack through, like Routing Registrar, just can get over almost anything, and if they're unblocked, are a huge uh, amount of damage. But stuff like Steel Leaf Champion, can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. So that's always going to get over something like a Seder Wayfinder or an Arboreal Grazer. So that's going to get five damage through and not just be chump blocked, which is one of the things that the smaller, that the combo decks sort of rely on, like either the Simic Ramp or even the Inverter deck with like Thassa's Oracle. Like they're like, I can cast this early. I can chump something. Uh, it's not going to chump a Steel Leaf Champion. Yeah, and then finally worth mentioning that this deck is running a playset of Collected Company, one of the most broken or most best or just best cards in uh, Pioneer. And this deck has what looks to me to be 31 hits off of Collected Company, which is pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't count uh, your mana dorks on that, it has uh, 20, 25, 23. Sorry, 23 hits. Well... It almost has no whiffs, right? Galta is the only creature that doesn't get down off of a Coco. Right. Pretty good. 
pretty 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 good yeah i would certainly love to uh coco and then untap with a rotting bird store flashed in at the end of turn <laughs> excuse me <laughs> giant dinosaur coming through mm-hmm. so uh what do you think about that being the top of day one who watched coverage yeah I, I watched quite a bit it was it was good i wish they i honestly wish they didn't show so much demir but you know scg has a they they want to show the people's that this names that are known typically and a lot of them were just on the demir inverter deck so i think you just saw a lot of it they want to show the people that are doing well so it makes sense yep all right well it's good to have a look at the top but let's look at the rest of day two so i'm going to read off some of the percentages of the day two metagame i'll read off everything down to three percent let's say yeah so dave i gotta say i love that this chart is just a photo of your tv (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I went on Twitter last night when I was writing these notes and I was trying to find the chart from the coverage, but I had taken a picture of it to put up in the dive down nation. So I just, I just put that up instead. So now you can see my cool, my cool TV, my switch next to it. Yeah. These are one of the perks that you get once you start looking at our show notes is the type of hardware Dave is working with. Oh God, OPSEC. I'm not gonna be able to do this anymore. Once people, people will be able to find me if they can see my television. Yeah. Hopefully your photo isn't geotagged, bro. Oh, gosh. They're going to see like a reflection with like a street sign in it. I better delete this now. Enhance. Enhance. <laughs> we did it. Uh, Stan, I think we're done for the episode. Shane, have fun. <laughs> okay. I'll take over from here. Um. All right. Well, at the top of the metagame, as you might expect, was Demir Inverter with 23.2% of the metagame. 23.2. Uh, just behind that, with 21.7% of the metagame, was Salti Delirium which is the word that I constantly misspell. I discovered as I've, as I wrote these notes. Oh yeah. It's tough. Don't ask me why. I don't know why. One E two eyes. Uh, yeah. Our, our elementary school teachers would not be proud Shane. Um, third on the list was Bant spirits with 13% of the metagame followed closely by mono white devotion with 8.7% of the metagame, which is kind of a surprise that it was, as represented as it was, but it's definitely looking like a more and more powerful deck. As a reminder, that is a mono-white deck with the Heliod Ballista combo. And then we have three decks that were at 4.3% each, and those are Lotus Breach, Mono Red Aggro, and Azorius Spirits. So if you combine the Spirits, it's like 17%? Yeah, it's it's uh, 12 decks instead of 9. So Yeah, yeah. Off the top of your head, do either of you know the key difference between Bant and Azorius? What is Azorius swapping for Coco? Mystical Dispute, apparently. And Teferi. And uh, Mutavault as well. And Mutavault, yeah. So simpler mana base, not stretching as much, more consistent, and Teferi and Mutavault. Yeah. So any surprises here? To me, it felt like the main thing is that WoW Demir Inverter is very, very big at the top of that meta, but I'm not surprised it was the most played deck. Not me either. I think the surprise for me was that it was so top heavy, right? Like there's Demir Inverter, Sultai Delirium, and various Spirits decks all at like over 15%. And then basically we have it. And then we have it again. And we have just a bunch of kind of one or two offs, really. And I think that the decks Demir Inverter, Sultai Delirium, and Spirits are the type of decks that I think people wanted to maximize their skill and the power, and that's why they brought one of those 3.5 decks, I think. And the 3.5 decks to you, again, are Inverter, Delirium, 
spirits and breach. No, and then Azoria spirits. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah, when I saw this day two meta, my first reaction was that the other bucket was too small at eight percent. But as I think about this a little more, I wonder if that's just kind of the nature of a day two meta where you have a lot of really good players gravitating toward one or two, or in this case, maybe three strategies. And if we looked at day one, the other bucket might be a little less concerning at first glance. Yeah, I think it's interesting they had to make others so small here anyway because it was so top heavy. Yes, exactly. And let's let's say that they put all the two player decks and one player decks into other. That would be 14 decks. That would still be less decks than Demir Inverter or Sultai Delirium. Whoa. And so I do think that that is a little bit concerning. At least it's sort of a metric that we've talked about about on here before where when other gets smaller than a couple of decks in the day two meta it is kind of a concerning thing about these eternal formats yeah the other thing is if you look at this list and not necessarily at the meta game percentage it's a pretty diverse list of decks which i think is a positive right that you have all these strategies that you can play in this format and conceivably get to day two of a big event but it's when you kind of look at that percentages that it starts to get really scary. And as we saw over the course of the weekend and over the course of a lot of coverage, this top deck, Demir Inverter, even when everyone knows that it's the deck to beat, people still have a really hard time beating it. Yeah, Stan, do I have a scary percentage for you? And it's the percentage, six, six, of, Demir, six. The percentage of Demir Inverter in the top eight. Yeah, and that percentage of Demir Inverter in the top eight is 50%. Because four Demir Inverter decks made it to the top top eight here, piloted by extremely notable players. We had Collins Mullen with Demir Inverter, Julian Henry from uh, Europe, who I heard has recently moved to the States and is planning on showing up in Star City more often. Julian Henry is the person who did a lot of work. They mentioned this on uh, the cast this weekend that... Uh, he did a lot of work on the Urza decks, but also this is the person whose metadata was messed up on Goldfish for a while, <laughs> where where the Urza deck was just called Julian Henry for some reason for a week or so. Legend. Legend. Exactly. Well, so th- this guy's just going to show up in my Midwest and start winning tournaments? Hey, Julian, on behalf of the Midwest, bonjour. Exactly. It might be pronounced Henri, to be honest. Oh, Julian Henry? Yeah, it could be. I'm sorry if we did it wrong. Julian Henry. I'm sure he's not listening. Uh, And then finally, as I mentioned before, the two undefeated players from day one, Peter Ingram and Ben Weinberg, both made the top eight as well. What else is in that top eight, though? So the last few decks there, there were two mono-white devotion decks. Uh, Chris Iali and Jameson Purdue both made it with that. And then the last two decks were... Azorius Control, piloted by Sean Mogulgard and Golgari Agro, who uh, was piloted by Sean Warning, who was the, the player who had it in the 8-1, uh, who had an 8-1 record at the end of day one as well. I believe Chris Yali was another name that came up in our conversation last week about the NRG trials. That's awesome. Yeah, so a bunch of people who had good weeks at Energy had good weeks at SCG Open too. That's pretty interesting. Can you imagine spending a week in Indianapolis for back-to-back tournament weekends? I suspect they probably didn't stay. Now, I've been watching a lot of Good Bones, and let me tell you what, they're making Indianapolis look good to me. I think, yeah, Indy's a cool town. I actually like it too. Yeah, it's great. 
All right. So as we mentioned, the brackets whittled down, whittled down really quickly to a finals of Pete Ingram versus Ben Weinberg. Um, there were a lot of cool matches in the lead up to the top eight. I don't know how much you saw of coverage, but there was a really cool inverter mirror for a win and in between Collins Mullen and Zach Allen. That was pretty intense. And then I enjoyed watching Jamison Purdue, who was playing uh, the mono white devotion against the Bo- Boros heroic player from day one, um, where he won game one by t- turn fouring the Boros pilot who was going to turn for him. Huh? Well, you know what to say about Pioneer. It's a turn four format. Yeah, exactly. That's what everybody's thinking about. I thought Pioneer was a win the die roll format. <laughs> that too. It's a turn four die roll format. Well, I think what it all comes down to for me when I look at this, though, is that it's a little hard to get over the fact that we saw the well-worn conversion path of Demir Inverter follow that kind of thing that happens when decks are a little broken. Where they're 15% of the day one meta this is a guess because um, we, they didn't give us day one meta numbers, so I don't really know. But then day two, they're suddenly 25% of the meta. And then in the top eight, they're 50% of the meta. And then they're 100% of the finals. And so that's certainly a pattern we've seen before with decks like Urza or Phoenix, even that definitely made people stop and think. Hogak. Yeah, Hogak was kind of like 40% of the day two meta, 75% of the top eight, and 100% of the finals. And a thousand percent of first place. That's a big percentage. Yeah. For what it's worth, Inverter also had seven decks in the top 16, but no additional decks in the 17 through 32nd places. So it was seven out of the top 16 and seven out of the top 32. Well, that, that 16 through 32nd was like where all the Sultite Delirium were living, right? Yep. That's the thing that I thought was the most interesting that I found when I looked at the results is that somehow... The deck that had the most representation in the top 32 was Sultai Delirium with 11 decks. It was 30% of the top 32 was Sultai Delirium, but no one managed to convert a top eight with the deck, which is a bit of a surprise. Um, it seemed like a lot of Sultai converted to day two. I mean, you'll notice that we we didn't mention it when we were doing our kind of top 14 decks uh recap at the beginning but it was a huge part of the day two meta and then a bunch of those people seem to not be able to maybe make up for the couple of losses that they got in day one to be able to get into the top eight uh notably lotus breach was a small part of day two and even a smaller part of the top 32 there was only one deck that made the top 32 none of the eight one spirits players managed to top eight and reminder there were four of them going into into day two that had eight one records and there were three devotion decks in the top 10 decks so there were the two that made the top eight and then the last one was in 10th place yeah mono white devotion up and comer yeah i i definitely think there's a big up arrow next to that deck after this weekend i love up arrows so what do you guys think in the aftermath and on twitter it seemed like almost a foregone conclusion that something is going to happen in all caps with periods in between the words well, it's Monday when we're recording this, and Aaron Forsyth basically told us that before a band announcement happens, about a week in advance, they were going to announce an announcement. And at the time of recording, we have no scheduled BNR announcements on the radar. Might happen later this week, but if it didn't happen today, a small part of me thinks that Inverter will live for at least another week or two. Yeah, was that... I guess I kind of assumed that the announcement of the announcement would happen on Monday, but I guess that's not necessarily the case. 
they just said that they would try to give people about a week's notice before they made the actual BNR announcement, any BNR announcements. All right. So watch this space, I guess Aaron was saying. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing because the timing is kind of odd. There aren't a lot of premiere events coming up that are Pioneer for a little bit here. So I guess the question is if they're just going to try to keep letting Magic Online tangle with the problem until we come back to a paper event or if they're going to be proactive and try to do something long before there's a paper event on the calendar again. What do you guys think about Debir Inverter right now and its place in the format? Burn it. Ooh, how so? I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say something provocative. <laughs> I'll say something provocative. Go for it. We wouldn't be in this mess if Pioneer had Blood Moon and better counterspells. Are you being influenced by the interview you just did with the pen sword? Yes. Check out our bonus episode where Stan interviews the pen sword about playing Blue Moon. I mean, watching all these inverter mirrors and inverter play against people who are running main deck mystical dispute which is a one-mana counterspell against some of the strongest pieces inverter, not inverter itself, but some of the other very strong pieces, including Dick Through Time and the Oracle. It's clear to me that if Pioneer had better interaction that more decks could run, maybe this specific combo wouldn't be such a problem compared to something like the Breach Combo deck, which got hated out almost immediately. I don't really know what, what when people say, Stan, when you say better interaction, I don't know what people mean. Like, do you mean like logic not? Like, what do you want? Like, for your counter spell? Yeah, I want something as close to a two mana hard counter as possible. Something ideally that's better than quench, which would just be mana leak because we're not going to get access to anything more like that, right? Well, even logic not want to be that good in this format. Right, right. I'm not saying necessarily that we need specifically Counterspell or Logic Knot or Deprive or whatever. I just mean that there are so few tools to be able to interact with the stack in a meaningful and consistent way that I think we're going to potentially see more of this problem arise where these combos that can kind of get through to the board and basically just win off a trigger take over the format periodically. Stan, I feel like if you have a Blood Moon in your deck, they're just going to thought seize it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just going to get Thoughtseize turn one or turn two. Yeah, but that's why you draw it on turn three after they've Thoughtseized you, and then... Then you're good to go. Then you're totally good to go. Maybe you you loot into it off something. Yeah, but it also means that they don't then Thoughtseize your Mana Leak or Logic Knot or, you know, whatever it is you're casting to interact with whatever they're doing. Yeah, I mean, the, the real problem is, or one of the real problems is, right, that the, the tools to fight this deck are in the deck. So you have like mystical dispute, you have Thoughtseize, uh, you have what thought erasures and things like that, at that you just are incentivized to play the mirror and either tech your deck for the mirror. Like we saw some people with like triple, uh, I think Pete Ingram had triple heroes downfall for the heavy planeswalker builds that, you know, people are running more Narsets. They also are going to see more Gideons against white base decks. So it was a smart move on his part. But as these decks, you know, continue to tech tech against themselves and tech against the the only things that can beat them in the field, that's a little frightening, right? I mean, Pete Ingram did play the deck beautifully. Oh yeah, you could tell he was a little mentally. It was funny. I watched him round nine on day one, and so he has been playing you know eight rounds, nine rounds of this deck, 
and you could tell he was a little mentally wiped. Like, you know, decisions were taking a little bit longer. And then I watched him like very early on day two, and I was like, this is a different guy. Like he was, you know, so fresh playing at such a good clip. It was really impressive. Yeah, he's just a little sleepy bear the night before. He just needed needed a little rest. I know I, I know how that is. Look, I I think for my part, I'm pretty in favor of a ban. And uh, in the rich tradition of what's gone on in the dive down, Shane recently gave me the dig through times to complete my play set of dig through times. <laughs> and so I'm sure it will be banned before I get a chance to play it in paper, much as like what happened with Oko and what will certainly happen with the uh, underworld breaches that I, that I bought as well. Um, but I do think that it's probably time for dig through time. It's probably time for us to draw that line where it stops subsidizing decks like this as just a matter of course in the format for the format to be good in the long term. I love the card. I would love to keep playing it. I just think it's probably too good. And uh, this is just a case of that. Here's my real fear, though, is that if if Inverter goes, Delirium is going to take over. Uro's really obscene. It invalidates almost every aggressive strategy all by itself. And, you know, all the other aggro, de- all, all the other cards in the deck that can invalidate aggro as well. So I feel like Inverter goes, Delirium becomes the new top dog. Uh, what happens then? I mean, people can attack against Oro, I think, a little bit, though. I mean, there's already people playing cards that like prevent you from gaining life and things like that that slow it down. Like just, you know, red with Rampaging Ferocidon seems like it could do some do some stuff there. Exile effects. Yeah, exile effects are big. Like, so I, I think there's more play there. It also doesn't kill you out of nowhere. Yeah, good point. So, I mean, I, I don't necessarily always love formats where the best deck is a mid-range deck, but um, I think... I think it might be better than this. Yeah. I mean, I think that dig seems like the card to go. It's just one of those cards that it's banned in every other eternal format. I believe it's, it's too good at what it does. It allows for too much selection. So it's not the fact that you get two cards that you can get whatever answer you want out of the top seven cards of your deck, which is crazy. And so you take away dig inverter likely becomes much less consistent. It probably falls to a much more reasonable win rate. I wouldn't be surprised if inverter has like a close to a 60% win rate right now. Um, Watsi will likely quote it when they ban something to nerf inverter a little bit. I hope it's not like inverter. I hope it's not Thassa's Oracle. I love the value of Thassa's Oracle, like in a blue based deck. Like I've been playing a little bit of blue devotion in pioneer and Thassa's Oracle is great. It's it's it gets you some some scrying, gets you some pips for devotion. It's a very good little card. It would stink to have it invalidated just because of the win the game text on it that it, that inverter uh, really enables so easily. I believe it was the MPL member Jess Estefan who tweeted: "If your card has so much text that you can't fit flavor text, then your card is too good." And every time we encounter a card that's causing problems with the format, I feel like that observation is true more often than not. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's it for the breakdown for this week. Uh, thanks for going through this journey to Indianapolis with us once again. And uh, after this, we're going to hop into uh, some new pants made by SRAM. Stay with us. So as we mentioned earlier, 
This week we are doing a deep dive on an up-and-coming Pioneer deck, Orzov, or sometimes SRAM Auras. That's right, back-to-back deck dives, and that's because this week's topic is a request from one of our top-tier patrons, Alex W., thanks again. They asked us to cover this deck, which we were very happy to do. And as Shane had mentioned earlier in the episode, people at the $15 tier on our Patreon get to request an episode topic from us after being at that tier for eight weeks or so, and then every six months or so after that, you get to request another topic. So if you want us to cover a topic or deck that you are interested in, you can sign up for the double-sided Diamond Dust Rare tier. A very generous way to support us here at the Dive Down. And it's been very fun to work on episode topics with some of our biggest patrons. So today in covering Orzov Auras, we're going to look at what the deck is, uh, what the general goal of the deck is, and how the cards on the deck support that strategy. Uh, I'll give you some strategies for playing with and against the deck, because you probably are starting to see it more if you're playing Pioneer at all. Uh, talk about some sideboard strategies and cards that go into those strategies and give our overall thoughts, feelings on the deck, uh, how we enjoyed playing it, how we think it could be tweaked now and in, and in the future. So let's start with what is this deck all about? Where did it come from? And what's it trying to do? It really kind of came out of a, what, Theros Beyond Death, right? There's tons of Theros Beyond Death cards in this deck. And Ken Yuki Hiro uh, realized the synergies uh, in the cards that appeared in Theros Beyond Death and it existed in other sets in Pioneer. He brought it to the regional players tour in Nagoya at the beginning of February. He finished third with the deck and his constructed record was, you know, six and X over nine rounds, a perfectly good constructed record, but people took note of the typically cool uh, Yuki hero strategy and wanted to test it and run it themselves. Just want to point out that most of the cards that are in this deck from Theros Beyond Death are one converted mana cost your favorite your favorite dave my favorite by far huh essentially this deck is designed to efficiently kill your opponents by playing these very low cmc creatures you put low cmc enchantment auras on said creatures and then you just start turning them sideways and chipping away at your opponent's life total After sideboarding, the deck can become a little bit more disruptive with some of the powerful cards that black and white have access to. And while this may sound a bit like modern Bogles, an aura deck with a substantial pedigree, Orzov Auras doesn't get to rely on the hexproof keyword to easily get around targeted removal the way the modern deck does. Instead, the creatures in this deck have synergies with other parts of the strategy that gives you something to build around and maybe even a little more staying power into the mid and sometimes late game. I would say one of the most interesting things about this is that the keyword of choice for this deck seems to be, I mean, there's two. One is enchantment yeah, and the other one is lifelink. Yes, I love it. Interestingly enough. Yeah, lifelink auras. Um, so... It's interesting, though, the deck is sometimes called SRAM Auras, and SRAM is really not necessary or integral to winning most games, but it gives you so much value and is such a synergistic part of the deck that he's become sort of the namesake. So let's talk about SRAM Senior Edificer, a.k.a. Dave's Future Cosplay Target. Um, it's a one of the white 2-2 Dwarf Advisor legendary creature. 
so you can't have two out there. Whenever you cast an aura, equipment, or vehicle spell in this deck, it's typically going to be aura. Draw a card. So SRAM acts as your redraw engine to keep the cards flowing into your hand, and that's awesome, right? Alone as a two-drop, he's just a two-two. He's not really sufficient to build an aura deck around, and all these other creatures in the deck are really making things tick as well. I think you could say the backbone of the deck is formed by these three new enchantment creatures from Theros Beyond Death. There is, uh, what is it, Alseed? Alseed of Life's Bounty? How do we want to say it, y'all? I think Alseed is right. Okay, Alseed of Life's Bounty. Wasn't there a character on uh, that vampire show on HBO, True Blood, named Alseed? Oh. Yes. Yes, there was. There you go. Hey, that show was great for one season. And then we have another contentious word, Hateful Eidolon or Eidolon. In no way. Eidolon, please. Yeah, please, yes. And Ephemia the Cacophony. So let's start with uh, Alseid. I think it's Cacophony. I think it's Cacophony as well. Oh, is it really? Yeah. It's not. Okay, well, dang. It's like, so we have we have three words that Shane can't say very well. Um, I mean, and one of them is a real word. Cacophony. The other ones are not. It's funny. I rarely, I've never said cacophony out loud. I've only read it. Yeah, you've just read it in David Foster Wallace books. I know. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with Alseid of Life's Bounty. Uh, it's a single white mana nymph enchantment creature with a life link. The cool part about Alseid is you can pay one mana and sacrifice the creature. A target creature or enchantment you control gains protection from the color of your choice until end of turn, and they start as a 1-1. Yeah, I mean, it does a few things that are valuable for you, right? It is a 1-CMC creature, like I was talking about. It comes with a keyword, which you don't always get, and it comes with a special ability that acts as a protection spell for you to use later on. So you can suit stuff up with it, and you can also use it as a way to protect creatures later on or give something protection a la God's willing to push push through uh, blockers or something like that if you get in a board state where it makes sense. It's a big deal. You know, I think this is a card that's a lot of value. I, I definitely am kicking myself a little bit for not noticing it a little bit more on the spoiler because there is just so much text on this one mana creature. But for sure, there you go. So the really big thing about LCA, of course, we talked a little bit about lifelink. It helps you... Uh, be able to just gain a ton of life once it's suited up and all those kind of things. But there is one thing to keep in mind with this card, and that is that giving a creature with protection on it, or giving a creature with auras on it in this deck, protection from white, will make the auras fall off of the creature. Don't do that. Uh-oh. Don't do that. And I'll I'll say it was problematic in a few uh, few matchups especially when i was playing against mono white devotion yeah mono white devotion green white auras oh man i played against this weird green white deck that was running sphere of safety and sigil of the empty throne and it just destroyed me because i could not use my lcid to force through damage through their blockers and that's bad because you can't do it without losing your auras and so as good as this card is it's got a little bit of downside built in it or just it, it has a tendency to just kind of lose its utility in some matchups one of the things that I like about this creature is the not obvious but really clever synergy that it can have with the next creature we're going to talk about, which is Hateful Eidolon, a single black, one-two, lifelinking enchantment creature spirit. Whenever an enchanted creature dies, draw a card for each aura you control that was attached to it. 
So the synergy I'm referring to here is if Alcide has a couple pairs of pants on and you sack it to give another creature protection from a color while Hateful Eidolon is on the board, you get to recoup some of those losses. I definitely did this play a couple of times and I did this play with multiple Hateful Eidolons out so you draw twice as many cards. Mm. Whoa. I never thought about that. I like it. I did not know it stacked. It does stack. Yeah, I mean, what I like about Hateful Eidolons is another cheap creature with lifelink. You can throw a bunch of auras on it in like low removal type of matchups and just ride it to victory. Um, I like that it makes the opponent's removal when they do have it less valuable for them. One of the things that does kind of stink, though, is that exile-based removal, which, again, like the white-based decks that are already kind of a problem for you, they're running a lot of exile-based removal, and that kind of stinks because it gets around the death triggers. I had a similar issue with bounce effects, especially out of the spirits deck, so that spells like Petty Theft and Reflector Mage were huge setbacks and were basically impossible for me to get any value out of. Let me tell you another thing that kind of stinks about this card. It is one of those cards in the long tradition of cards with art that makes it look like it can fly when it cannot fly. (laughs) So keep that in mind. That stuff around it is not its wings. Oh, yeah. It's it's just it's like it's like a ribbon dancer. I kept looking at this card thinking, okay, then I can attack with my flyer. No, wait, I need Griff Spoon to do that. Yeah. Something I will be curious to revisit with you guys after we've had a chance to talk about more of these creatures is whether you had favorite one-drops to lead the game off with because Hateful Eidolon was often my second favorite one-drop. So if I didn't have one of the other cards we're going to talk about, but I did have Hateful Eidolon, I would try to leave with Hateful as you know my initial one-drop to get the ball rolling. I gotta say, I do think that this deck is a little bit like Prowess and even Feather in the sense that you got to have a one drop. And I guess Boggles is that way too. Yeah, You have to have a Boggle to start out. And so a lot of times you have to mull to find that card. Yeah, there's way too much tempo loss otherwise. Yeah. yeah. And and if, let's say, I started a hand that had Alcide and Hateful, personally, I found that I would rather lead with the Hateful Eidolon. I think that is probably wrong, but we can talk about that later. Cool. Do you? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'll tell you why later. Okay. Um, but Dave, let's talk about a flyer and that's Ephemia, the cacophony. Perfect. Caca. Um, so it's a one in the black flying two one. It's a legendary enchantment creature harpy. So all you harpy tribal players can also put this in there. Um, at the beginning of your end step, you may exile an enchantment card from your graveyard. If you do create a two, two black zombie creature token. So things I like about Ephemia reasonably costed gives you innate evasion turns useless enchantments that might have been put into your graveyard into valuable attackers or blockers if you're racing. Um, I think all those things are awesome. I love that you get value the same turn you cast it. The fact that it triggers on end step is something that almost surprised me because that's not something that we get to deal with often. So, so many other cards trigger, you know, on your upkeep. So that was nice. Though I, I got to say, one time I accidentally cast an Ephemia into another Ephemia because I did not realize they were legendary. That stinks. Yeah. They got that little funny header now. It does help a little bit when you're scanning through your battlefield. Um, I thought this card was fine, but that's kind of it. I actually think that this card, I would place this card in the not part of the backbone of the deck mm-hmm. cards. 
So I actually don't think it's quarter of the deck. I think it's probably a meta call or something you play when you have an opportunity. And as a point of evidence, I will submit the 28th place deck from the Star City Games Open this weekend, which was an Orzov Aura's deck that was not running Ephemia at all and was instead running Apostle of the Purifying Light main, which I think is a smart meta call as well. That's interesting, especially your point about it not being the backbone of the deck. I kind of get that. I, I would never cast it on turn two unless perhaps my opponent got uh, an enchantment into my graveyard on, on turn one. But that that triggered ability that happens at the end step, I would think, is so important to what makes this card good that if I wasn't getting that at the end of my turn, then I'd rather keep this card in my hand. I'm a little bit surprised by that, Stan, because just having the innate evasion is so good. Like, I, I didn't really care. Like, if I had something better to cast, then sure. But otherwise, I'd, I'd really gladly have this on the battlefield as just a flying 2-1 that could wear some enchantments that the next turn I attack with it. I don't know. I think that I had a hard time actually going wide with this deck, something that I know we're going to talk about in more detail later, but it was so important to me to try to get as many creatures onto the board as part of my general plan in playing this deck that I always thought it was really important to do what I could to get at least one other body out of this card because otherwise it's just a 2-1 flyer. Well, here's the thing. In typical games, I feel like would play out kind of like play a one drop maybe untap play another one drop and an enchantment or untap and play two enchantments and then that's kind of the card that they want to be removing and then you can maybe on turn three untap and play your ephemia what's the removal what's the removal target now like if they kill the creature with the enchantments they're going to lose value to the ephemia if they kill the ephemia then maybe they can you know deal with your suited up one drop i feel like it's a card that they have a hard time not removing and then a hard time removing if you've already suited up something else with a few enchantments. So it's kind of like just a little bit of a squeeze area there. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a great card on rate. I think that's what I can say unequivocally about it. It does a lot for a two mana card. For sure. All right. So let's talk about the, the last couple of cards that are generally part of the main deck. It's kind of like there's a little bit of a season to taste. Like you said, we saw the the pro black creature being played. You know, I think what we see like some dried militant being played. Both of which can help you attack the graveyard, which I think is part of their upside. And of course, the, the pro black one has the upside that it can't be fatal pushed, which is one of the worst things about playing this deck. Exactly. We'll get to that later for sure. I mean, like what dried militant is just like a two one for one. And instance and sorcery is going to exile rather than the graveyard. Yep. So that's, you know, that helps against like, you know, what dig through time style decks or the Lotus Bloom, Lotus Breach decks. Yep. But I think the big card that we could talk about for a minute here is favorite hoplite actually appears in this deck in some quantity, whether it's sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four. Uh, you know, a Theros era heroic deck. Uh, staple as well as a staple of the Boros heroic decks from Pioneer. Saving the best for last. You're crazy, Stan. I am all for favorite Hoplite. This is my favorite one drop in this deck. If I had an opener with Hoplite in a land, I was I was in business. And then they fatal pushed it. Yeah, but they're going to fatal push everything I play anyway, so might as well go for the biggest tallest ceiling. So, Stan, I feel like this is an indication that maybe I could sell you on a different deck 
other than this deck because I feel like this card is very awkward in this shell because you don't get to leverage the second half of its heroic trigger that often. Yes. It's definitely a really good card. It's a one drop. It fits with the with the targeting plan, make things bigger, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's not as good as the cards that have lifelink in this deck and you don't really get to do the uh, damage prevention thing all that much. It does let you swing into boards, sure. which is nice, but that's kind of it. I kind of think that's all this deck is doing, though, is just trying to turn creatures sideways that are as big as possible. And the reason that I like Top Plate so much is because, all things being equal, this creature gets bigger than anything else does. It's true. I figured, I felt that the lifelink off of the other creatures makes games just unwinnable for my opponents. They're totally unable to race. So if I'm swinging in with even just a, let's say a first strike seven sixer or something like that with lifelink, you know, what if that could be maybe what, like a, a 10 10 favorite hoplite, right? But who cares? Because like if I'm swinging at that one creature and they've got maybe three or four creatures on the other side for the crack back, then, you know, this has no innate trample and it has the lifelink from the other two creatures is what really makes you able just to pull away from your opponents in so many games, I think. But I think we should put a pin in this and come back to a little later because I would like to continue this discussion with you, Stan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Specifically about this card because I do love this card. I want to be clear. Hey, and I love having discussions with you, Dave. We started a podcast about it, even. What about me? This time, Stan and I are having the handshake emoji, emoji and you have to sit out. Okay. So, I mean, let's let's talk about these creatures, though, just for a second, right? They're all pretty weak on their own. They're just one and two drops. You're not going to win the game off of, like, these, what, 16 or 17, one or two power creatures in the deck. And this is where the auras come into play. You're running even more auras than you are creatures. There's typically, like, what, 19 or 20 uh non-creature spells most of them auras and then like what 17 or 18 creatures but and you don't get the best auras in modern bogles like you don't get david cornet you don't get rancor you don't get the various umbras in pioneer and so some replacements had to be made that are a little bit less effective but they're still pretty decent yeah you do get a whole bunch of copies of cranial plating basically yes exactly so why don't you take us through those yeah, so Ethereal Armor is, I think, what the enchantment that I most want to see in my hand with this deck. Um, it's a single white mana aura. Enchanted creature gets 1-1 one, one for each enchantment you control. Okay, that's important. Each enchantment you control includes enchantment creatures and has first strike. So cheap, the relevant ability with first strike makes you almost unable to lose combat combat all the time and stacks like crazy because your creatures are enchantments, your decks built around enchantments. A single ethereal armor is can pump a creature into lethal range super quickly and surprisingly. So like if you if the opponent if you want tap and you have you know one or let's say two ethereal armors, you can just have your creature get into an insane body very quickly. Yeah, in general, I personally tried to save these for last. So let's say it's turn three and I had, you know, two or three ores in my hand. I tried to cast this if I knew the coast was clear because they hadn't revealed a removal spell already in response to one of my auras, or perhaps they spent a removal spell on a creature earlier in the game just because the ceiling on this one is so high. Totally agree. Got to sandbag them, especially since this card can help you rebuild yeah. if you're at a low, low, car, uh, low hand count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all that glitters is basically a crappier ethereal armor. It's one and a white instead of white, 
and it gives you plus one plus one for each artifact and enchantment you control. So it's mostly strictly worse, but still stacks really nicely. It's really important to your, your very fastest kills in this deck. Up next, you have Sentinel's Eyes. Single white mana enchantment aura enchant creature. Enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one, and has vigilance. But there's another line of text. Escape. White mana. Exile two other cards from your graveyard. You may cast this card from your graveyard for its escape cost. So is the flavor here that like it's like this guard is sort of coming back to life like as like a zombie type thing? The flavor the flavor is that his eyes are very good. They're they're the, the art on this is actually really creepy. They're like it's super purple eyes. Yeah. It's I weird. think they're supposed to be enchanted eyes, like they're Nick's eyes, basically. Enchant eyes. Each eye gets plus one plus one. Yeah. And has creepy. <laughs> Keyword creepy. You know that Eagles song about your enchanted eyes? That's it. When I went to pre release, I opened a foil copy of this card, which I thought looked kind of cool because of all the colors in the art. And enchanted eyes. You can't escape your enchanted eyes. My enchanted eyes, because I can see you wherever you go. That was the subtext. Enchanted eyes are watching you. <laughs> All right. So worth noting, vigilance can be a very valuable keyword and ability to help with racing in particular. And the escape text can be quite handy when you need to resuit up a new creature, especially good insurance against your rate of sometimes getting two for one. Uh, that was sometimes the case for me if I tried to cast my auras early or rather I'd get a creature removed in response to me casting an aura. So this was the type of card that I wanted to almost start a chain of auras with because if this got into the graveyard, I didn't feel so bad. Exactly. I'm 100% with you on this. I always felt like I always tried playing this card first as far as which which uh, pair of pants I went for. Those chinos? Or eyes. Chinos, yeah. Sentinels for your eye, pants for your eyes. I mean, I'm stoked that the one of the one CMC escape cards found a home and uh, that's all I got to say about this. Let's talk about like this is this escape light card, Dave. Yeah. So the next card is Griff's Boon, which was an enchantment aura. It costs a single white, and it says enchanted creature gets plus one plus zero and has flying, and then it has a very strange activated ability, which is essentially uh, a graveyard recursion. It's three colorless and a white. Return Griff's Boon from your graveyard to the battlefield attached to target creature. Activate this ability only anytime you can cast a sorcery. This was. An excellent staple card in Scars, Scars Shadows over Innistrad draft. Scars of Innistrad. Scars of Innistrad. Yeah, uh, love this card in draft. I was really excited to get another chance to play with it, and I definitely use this a bunch of times to push through those final points of damage. Cast it from the yard a few times. It's it's a good good card uh, to have around, and oftentimes late game, this is the card that I was looking to top deck. Yeah, you want to get over those blockers typically. Yeah. Yeah, not to mention the flood insurance that you get from being able to cast this late if you have extra mana lying around and a, a creature that needs something to wear. Sure. Absolutely. This was kind of like the teamer battle rage of the deck to me because you didn't have access to any other real evasion. So I was just kind of like, all right, I'm hoping to get this so I can get in my last 10 damage. Yeah, there's nothing that gets you trample, which is kind of a pain with this deck. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to talk about that later. <laughs> I mean, our our final cheap white enchantment um, cartouche of solidarity 
It's uh, when Cartouche of Solidarity enters the battlefield, you create a 1-1 white warrior creature token with Vigilance, uh, and it gets the enchanted creature plus 1, plus 1, and first strike. So again, it's a small pump effect, has a relevant combat ability, and it gets you a redundant creature that you can attack with, block with, if you need to, in a worst-case scenario, suit it up with some enchantments. Um, It also synergizes nicely with a sideboard card we'll talk about later, Trial of Ambition. Yeah, totally good little card. Super good card. Really hurts when they fatal push your creature in response to you casting it, but that extra body is so nice. I mean, doesn't every aura suck when they fatal push in response, though, Stan? Yeah. The key is to not have them fatal push in response. Yeah, never never have fatal push happen. You're good to go. I guess one way to get around that is Karametra's Blessing, so... Definitely helps. Karametra's Blessing, in case you forgot, is a new card from Theros Beyond Death. It's an instant, and it says target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. And then it says if it's an enchanted creature or an enchantment creature, it also gains hexproof and indestructible until end of turn. I'm going to read that again. If it's an enchanted creature or enchantment creature only. Yes. So it's a great card that it gives you a lot of protection, a la God's Willing and some other decks that play cards like this. But it helps you with Wraths because it gives indestructible. But do not forget that you can't just target favorite hoplite and SRAM with this card or Apostle, uh, the Apostle of Purifying Light or something like that because I definitely did that. Don't forget <laughs> it has to be enchanted before you try to save it. For sure. I was totally impressed with this card. Um, I was almost always happy to draw it or to start a game with it. It kind of felt like a modal spell to me. So on my opponent's turn, if they try to destroy one of my creatures, it sometimes would function like a counter spell yeah. to trump their removal. Likewise, on my own turn, it would help win combat or even close out games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the trick with decks like this is that if you look at Heroic, you know, Heroic had God's Willing, and you, it's kind of like a disdainful stroke and shadow in some ways where it's a one mana disruption card that you can use offensively or a little or you can use defensively or a little bit offensively here and there to just kind of like push your game plan through and since it's cheap and has a lot of versatility uh this is the replacement of that you can't really play this particular card in any other deck other than this one yeah so it's got a good home here yeah i feel like if i could run like six or seven of these in my 75 i would like i especially with a popularity of removal decks in the format which again we'll get to um i wanted tons of these i loved having you know one in my hand at all times just for the combat trick blowout for the protection from removal i mean theoretically you do have eight of these in the deck right because you have alcyad of life's bounty as well which is supposed to function in the same way but as we mentioned there's plenty of corner cases where alcyad is just not as good for sure um so the mana pretty good in this deck it's enemy colored so you get your pain lands you get your shock lands you get your fast lands um typically maybe there's like one mana confluence which i find interesting i don't really think the deck needs the mana confluence honestly Uh, you get your mix of planes and swamps typically a lot more planes because all the white mana requirements in the deck and you're perfectly good to go because you have enemy colored mana only 18 lands though which I thought can make mulliganing a little tricky. Stan, I don't know what, what list you were looking at with 18 lands. Because the ones I saw started at 20 and maybe shaved down to eight, 19. So maybe you just ran one with 18. I think it's definitely too few lands, 18. Mm-hmm. I would start at 20, personally. Yeah, maybe that's just the list I found. 
Yeah. I do wonder if this is the type of deck that could run some number of utility lands, maybe a single Castle Lockthwain or even a Shambling Vent. I would love to run Castle Lockthwain, but there's just not enough swamps. To have it come in untapped. I think the key here is you you want this deck to have as many opportunities to come in, to have an untapped land come into play. For sure. Right? I think you can't really afford Shambling Vent and Lockthwain because of those things. If there was some kind of plan here where the deck was supposed to go longer, I think you could, but this deck is just not, I don't think it's supposed to go long at all. I think this is like, if you're not winning by turn six, you're probably dead. I mean, I would honestly love to have a Lockthwain here though, because you know, that just the, the deck when it runs out of gas really kind of stinks. Like your your top decks can feel pretty meager. Yeah, not to mention all the life you're gaining to help offset some of that tax off Lockthwain. Yeah, but this is one of the few decks in this style that actually has a card draw engine built into it already. It's got SRAM and uh, Hateful Eidolon, which both do a lot of a lot of work as far as drawing more cards. So, I mean, I feel like it's definitely a big difference between playing this and when you play something like an Infect or a Boros Feather, where when you run out of cards in Feather, you're just kind of like, you really are living off the top of your deck. Sure. You can do some stuff here to come back. Yeah, you get the Graveyard Recursion. You can hopefully maybe stick a SRAM. Um, but Stan, I think you are right that mulliganing in general with this deck is pretty tricky and you do need to have some certain cards in your opener. So let's talk a little bit about how this deck wants to play out. Right. And I think earlier you mentioned at the, you know, the base strategy is that you just want to aggro out the opponent. Like almost every matchup, you're going to be the aggressor and your sideboard is going to have a few cards to help support matchups where you might need a little bit of disruption to maybe stop a combo from going off or maybe disrupt a, an opposing aggressive deck. And so as the aggressor, I think what you need to be remembering is that you want to be applying pressure that forces your opponent to making less than ideal decisions in order to stop your assault. So I think, you know, even if you want to have some sort of eventual disruption, you really want to be developing your threats early on, no matter what you're doing, because that's what you want to be doing to stop, to like make your opponent react to you. Yeah. But just to go back to the the mulliganing thing for one second, in order to apply that early pressure, you got to have early pressure. Yes. And so this deck is set up where you have to mull I believe you have to mull similar to prowess and other decks like this, that you have to get a one drop. You have to have a one drop creature and two lands. I think I've definitely played a bunch of card uh, games with this decks like this, where I've kept one land. Of course I've had an entire hand of one, one CMC spells yes. doing that where I'm like, I, I can do it, I guess, <laughs> but um, it's more ideal to have two lands. You're right. And the thing is you want to have a mix of creatures and enablers. You don't want all creatures right because the creatures aren't very good you don't want all enablers because then you don't have anything to use the enablers on so the ideal hand is something that mixes all these pieces and that is an inherent vulnerability of this kind of style of play right is you got to run pretty good yeah i mold a lot you do mold a lot with this deck and i hated doing it it's like every card down is just like a huge lost resource so i kind of agree and disagree again because this is the only deck of this style that i've seen that has a card draw engine in it, right? So if you mull low, but you get to like five cards and you have, let's say you have a Hateful Eidolon, a SRAM, a couple of lands, and one um, 
one set of pants, you can kind of maneuver so that you get to get SRAM out there and try to draw some cards off of things instead of um, instead of going all in on the Eidolon on turn one. Sure. Like you can play a little bit more careful and try to recover. You can't really do that in other decks that are like this. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of ways this deck has to kind of squeeze the opponent a little bit, make him stressed out. You can go tall with one big creature. You can go slightly wide with numerous creatures. Like this isn't a tokens deck, of course, right? But you can, with the cartouche, with uh, the zombies off of your cacophony bird, you know, you can get a little bit of a board to have a number of medium-sized creatures to avoid blockers or to invalidate removal. So something you kind of suggest there is having a board of creatures where each of them is wearing maybe one pair of pants. One pants. Un pant. Do you think that's a good strategy in a deck like this? As opposed to having, like, let's say your bird or your lifelinker getting very tall while all of your other 1-1s or 1-2s Maybe if they're zombies, they're two twos, kind of just sticking around as chump blockers. I mean, I think you're super dead against Saltai if you try to go all in on one sure. threat. Yeah. And so that that's like the main example of why you would want to try to spread things out a little bit like this. I mean, Saltai on the flip side also tends to be able to put out several largest threats. So sometimes you have to maneuver around them as well. Exactly. But yeah, when you're playing against removal, this is going to kill your creatures. You kind of want to spread the risk. Right. Yeah, it's really about, I think it's about spreading risk and about spreading damage. So if your opponent has, you know, two blockers and you have three creatures, you want to not have one creature just sticking as like a one-two. You want to maybe make them into a four-five or something like that, right? So as long as you're not putting your creatures into risk from being blocked, I mean, you typically have first strike on a lot of your creatures. That's going to make their blocking hard in the first place. So I think if you are able to make it so that you're getting some damage in around blockers, that's better than trying to go tall and getting no damage in and they just chump once. Because I think they're going to be chumping anyway. Yep. So it depends on the board state. So can we talk for a second about this card advantage engine, SRAM and Hateful Eidolon? Yeah, please. My read is that this is possibly the most powerful thing that this deck is capable of doing. And that really SRAM, because of the ability there, is secretly a three-mana spell. Because getting that value can be so important as a way of keeping you alive and, you know, keeping you alive for an extra turn or two so that you can then close out the game, hopefully by turn six. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the two most distinctive things that this deck can do, right? So if you think about what differentiates this from other decks in the metagame, it's card draw and lifelink. I think are the two big things that that this card that this deck can do that is special to this core of cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the things I know you were talking about, Dave, with us is that you know you want to play a SRAM and get a card off it. So I kind of look at it a lot like maybe like a young Pyromancer, where it's like you're not going to always play that just out there on turn two. Right. You're going to wait till turn three. You know, it has no ETB, so the opponent can't remove it. So then you can cast an enchantment or a at least get a card draw off it if they remove the SRAM in response or something like that. Because SRAM is definitely a lightning rod. They do not want you drawing cards off it. Almost unreasonably so. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes people make mistakes. It's, I mean, this is one of the 
few cases where I, I hate like thinking about the incremental value you get off of like lightning rod type things. But I feel like in this case, people just do go out of their way to kill SRAM for sometimes no reason at all. Yeah, like you're like empty, you're like empty handed. They're like, well, let's get rid of SRAM. Yeah. And you're like, thanks for leaving my, th- my four or five out here. That'll do not do some work for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what's interesting is like this, it sort of seems like it's a play a creature suited up, beat down and cross your fingers type deck, but it's not, it, it's, I think sometimes it is. Um, it's like, that's the ideal game, right? Is like, you're just sort of getting the value off of what the deck's inherently trying to do. Um, but I don't know about you all, but I, I found I had to pretty drastically change the way I played the deck, depending on what my opponent was trying to do in their strategy. And so I kind of saw the decks that I needed to think about the most as like decks with black removal, decks with red removal, and then like low interaction decks without much removal at all. Mm-hmm. And so like the black removal decks are the ones you don't want to see the most, perhaps maybe, maybe, maybe the white base decks that we'll talk about a little bit, but with, with black removal decks, what I was trying to do was not just run a creature out on turn one and like hope to suit it up. I was like trying to maybe wait till turn two. I will I would drop like an Alciad and another creature, and that would force maybe the opponent to say, well, I guess I'll remove the Alciad in response to the cast trigger of this other creature. At least I'm getting the you know this creature off the board. And like we talked about earlier, is like you don't want to overly commit to just one creature versus those kind of decks and because you want to run them out of their removal cards over time. And that is by, you know, making a couple small, you know, medium sized creatures, trying to get your cartouche value, trying to get your zombie value. The zombie value can be huge because you're making two twos that are not, you know, they're not that insignificant at all. Yeah. I mean, I'd also point out that this is the reason that this deck ended up with a pro black card in it main, main sometimes. And you, you were running, Apostle in your list, I know, and some of the other lists we're seeing now are also running Apostle. Yeah, for sure. Where the black removal is so bad that it's worth running basically a vanilla 2-1 that has protection from black just because you can't fatal push it and I can put my pants on it and keep trying to attack. Yeah, I definitely, I ran a singleton in my list. I ran a singleton of Stan's favorite, um, the favorite Hoplite, and I ran a singleton of the Apostle. Uh, because after my first foray into like the tournament practice rooms, like my first you know four or five games, I was just like, man, I cannot beat fatal push decks um, very easily without Karametra's blessing. And so just having that card that you know doesn't stink on its own rate um, and with pro black was definitely helpful. Uh, so like, like you know against the removal decks, you want to get that long term value off of all the cards we mentioned, and so maneuvering yourself into position to to get that long term value and make the opponent's one for ones less valuable, uh, that's really where you want to be in against in that matchup, I think. And red removal is like totally different, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean because it doesn't scale as well. Yeah, right. And so if their removal is damage based. It is a good strategy, I think, to kind of try to go all in on one creature depending on what their other color pair is, right? Because you want to get something with lifelink so that you can race them and invalidate the burn they might point at your face. Sure. And then you also try to make a creature that's too big for them to kill unless they want to throw three shocks at it. And then you're kind of okay with it if they do that because you you might be able to recover faster than them or maybe it's a hateful Eidolon that they killed and you're drawing cards anyway, so... You know, there's a lot of stuff when you, in this sense, where red can do a lot of damage to you, but you also have a lot more ways to outplay it. Yeah. 
the lifelinking is so key in the red matchups because if you just get a big lifelinker, they can't block it. They probably can't throw enough burn at it. And your opponent's going to have a really hard time winning when you're like at 35 life. Yeah. One thing I did mess up in the red matchup is like, don't think that four toughness is enough because I, I was trying to get a lifelinker on the board. I thought I, you know, put it to four. It's going to be safe from even a lightning strike. And then it just gets lava coiled and I forgot about lava coil. Yeah. I also would keep in mind that like some of these decks can do a lot of damage to you really fast if you run out of cards. So if you are at, you know, Shane mentioned 35 life a minute ago. I think that the kind of midi mid range aggro red decks, if they land a Torbrin with some kind of token generator, they can do a ton of damage to you pretty fast. Oh yeah. Especially since you don't have any way to kill creatures in this deck, really, especially game one. Yeah. So um sometimes if they manage to remove or invalidate your life linker, they can still do a ton of damage to you via stacking effects or something like that. So just keep it in mind that, you know, you gotta you got to remember that they have ways that they can catch up, especially because of Torbrand specifically. And then, you know, non-interactive decks, those are the ones I wanted to see the most because you can just race. You know, they're, you're typically gaining so much life with your lifelinkers and they don't have anything to point at your creatures. So you're pretty happy with that. Did you all play spirits or counterspell based decks? Because I didn't run into any of those even in like 15 matches on Magic Online. How are those for you? I ran into spirits and it hurt. What were they doing? They were bouncing my creatures. They were blocking all. My only evasion is flying and their ability to block that uh, was, it felt pretty insurmountable to me. I, I think that, so what were they bouncing your creatures with? Reflector Mage as well as Petty Theft. Yeah, they don't all run Reflector Mage, but definitely lots of them run Petty Theft. Or just tapping them down with like Nebel Gas would be bad. Yeah, yeah. I feel like part of the reason that this deck exists is because it can block spirits, creatures that have been pumped up at least, but it might be behind in the matchup anyway because of the bounce. But other creature kind of combo-y decks like this cannot do anything against a field with a ton of lords on it. And this deck can block somebody profitably, kill one of their attackers in the air, gain some life. And so you can kind of win an attrition war that way, but definitely the bounce is going to make it hard for you to, to catch up. At least you have uh, protection spells that can help you with that and blessing and LC of life's bounty. But um, that still seems rough and probably a difficult matchup at best. One of the things I hated seeing the most was like any white base deck for a few reasons. And it's like, these they have exile based removal and it's invalidating like my bonus text on hateful eidolon uh because the creature has to die and exile gets around that and you know like we mentioned earlier is you can't pop that alcyid and give your creature pro white typically because all your auras are white and they just fall off into the graveyard so if they like cast a stasis snare or a baffling end or something like that at your creature where you're like well is it worth it for me to keep this creature you know, with a protection spell or it's just it's not great this leads us nicely into our next section which is playing against the deck and the first point that we keep harping on is that removal really hurts obviously in a creature combat based strategy if you're able to remove these creatures especially in response to us casting auras feels like a pretty big setback 
Likewise, as I mentioned, bounce effects can sometimes almost feel stronger than actual removal because then you might not get that benefit off of Hateful Eidolon, which is so unique to this strategy. Mm-hmm. I think you can't get greedy with your removal, right? It's like, don't try to like three for one somebody, you know, just get it off the board while you can, because typically, you know, there are a decent number of creatures in this deck, but if you keep them at casting like two mana, two ones or things like that, instead of being able to suit them up out of, let's say out of your burn range, or if they have a protection spell that they baited you into trying to cast your fatal push against and they have the Karametra's blessing or something like that, you know, just keep the board clear and you're going to be just fine, I think. Yeah, I do think one of the advantages of playing a deck like uh, Orzhov Auras a bit and other things like this is you you get a good at the kind of like play and counterplay of trying to figure out when is the right time to unload your hand into it and against black decks sometimes it's hard because they can thought seize you but the you know if you're playing against a removal deck sometimes you do kind of like attack a bunch of times with just unsuited cards and kind of wait for them to actually commit to the board and leave their mana down so that then you can drop a bunch of stuff and try to swing in so you just have to like watch it you know if you're if you're the pilot of the orzov deck you have to sometimes slow your roll and like Shane said, if you're the person playing against the Auras deck, just get rid of the creatures. Don't get greedy. I played a bunch of matches in the practice rooms before I did my league. And then when I did the league, I was paired against Sultai Delirium three times. I couldn't win a single game. It feels like perhaps the absolute worst matchup in the format for SRAM. So if you're trying to beat Orzov, play Sultai. For sure. Like I, I would definitely just try to go i would get a full play set of the the pro black two drop Mm -hmm. i would you know try to just lean on karametra's blessing and that card as much as i could and just hope yeah and i definitely want to match against sultai because of apostle purifying light essentially was kind of the way to do it and then at different points in time i gave it with um i gave it protection with the alcyad to get through their uro to be able to kill them um, but it is not an easy matchup, especially because Sultai Delirium has Snapcaster Mage in it. Don't forget that. <laughs> and by Snapcaster Mage, you mean? It has Jace Vince Prodigy. And so a lot of times and they'll get to play because you sometimes don't have a way to pressure Planeswalkers all the time. If you don't draw a Griffspoon, mm-hmm. yeah. then you can't get over their board and then you can't get rid of the Jace. And so they'll do things like you know, play Liliana the Last Hope and minus two, minus one, your guys. Or they'll play Jace and they'll fatal push, then they'll minus two Jace and fatal push again. And every card in this deck is susceptible to fatal push except for the Apostle. Yeah, when you look at the me- the meta game of Indy being like 20 plus percent Salti Delirium, you're like, I would not want to take the Aura's deck into this meta game. Yeah. So I'd like to cover the sideboard that this deck has access to. Because this is where essentially all of its interaction rests. Mm -hmm. And the interaction that's here is quite narrow to begin with. And the first card I want to bring up is Deadweight. Single black enchantment. Target creature gets minus two, minus two. So definitely nice against other aggro decks. And in some situations, it almost feels better than Fatal Push when you have SRAM on the board. Because then the Deadweight replaces itself with another card in your hand. And likewise, even if it doesn't actually kill an opposing creature, 
that might the minus two minus two might sometimes be enough to make the creature small enough that you then win combat. Yeah. Sometimes though, I did wonder whether the upside of the enchantment text on this card was really worth playing it over Fatal Push or even something like Cast Down. I gotta say, I, th- I think there's a case to be made for for doing that. You know what I mean? Like, why not have a couple of Fatal Pushes in the sideboard if you're putting any removal? Yeah, I feel like the two-card combo with SRAM is a little cute. Like, you might just want to get that creature off the board. You know what I mean? Yeah. So think about it if you're taking this deck out. Not a lot of people are trying Fatal Push in it. Maybe it's because the deck that has the most targets for Fatal Push is this deck. But um, something to keep in mind. Up next, you have Apostle of Purifying Light. One in a white for a human cleric. Protection from black pay two mana of any color to exile target card from a graveyard and it is a 2-1. This card rules. Yeah, th- we mentioned that this card is super effective against things like Sultai, even mono black aggro. And that graveyard hate sometimes comes in handy because of things like Uro? Uro. That's Absolutely. one. But the thing that I really love here is that you don't have to tap the card down to exile something from a graveyard. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got enough mana, you can do it as many times as you want. Yeah, it is kind of expensive. Yeah, definitely expensive, though. Um, I think that this card is just a good card to be aware of because it's in sideboards all over the place in these kind of small, uh, like, aggro creature decks that have white in them, either in the main board or in the sideboard. So this is a card that you should just probably have around if you like playing decks like this of any construction. Yeah, I think you got to have four of these in your 75 at some point. You know, whether it's four sideboard or you know, three and one of the main type thing or even a couple in the main, uh, I think it's not awful in the main. And there's just so much black removal running around. You know, mono black aggro is still popular. Salti Delirium, the inverter deck runs black removal. So you want to have protection from that and your some of your creatures because otherwise they're just going to get picked off and you're not going to be able to get anywhere, especially when you're racing like the inverter deck or something like that. Yeah, it doesn't even synergize with anything else in your deck. And still, we're talking about running it as a four of somewhere in the 75, I think really speaks to this card's power and utility in the strategy. We got Brain Maggot, as Stan affectionately referred to me in the intro. Uh, this card is interesting. Like it's, We started seeing it pop up as like a one or two of in the Sultai Delirium decks, and I think people are liking it in the sideboard here. It's good against combo. It's good against control. It's an enchantment creature. So there you go. Um, you know, it's not really going to attack much, so you're not going to throw a lot of pants on it. Though you may occasionally pump it with Karametra's Blessings to prevent your opponent from getting an Oracle or an Emrakul back. Um, or, you know, trying to take back their removal spell that you took with it. I guess we should talk about this card because it's not super contemporary and super common for people. So what it is, it's a one in a black one one. Enchantment creature insect, uh, really gross art. Don't look at it. When it enters the battlefield, that the opponent reveals his or her hand, and you choose a non-land card from it, and you exile it until Brain Maggot leaves the battlefield. So, this is like a cute tech. Like if the inverter deck inverts and they have their win con in hand, you can play the Brain Maggot and steal that win con from them, hopefully, and they don't have any way to get the Brain Maggot off the battlefield, and you win. Um, I think, you know, a lot of players will probably be able to play around that, but sometimes in a pinch, uh, they're not, and you're going to be able to deck them. So the deck that I was playing only had one Brain Maggot in the 75, 
were you or would you play multiples of this? I mean, it probably depends on the meta. Like, if you're going to bring this into a Demir Inverter field, sure. Yeah. I think you could definitely have two. Yeah. Up next is Hushbringer, a 1-2 fairy with flying and lifelink for one and a white. Creatures entering the battlefield or dying don't cause abilities to trigger. So in this case, it's really good against spirits. Plus, the flying makes it a good pants target. Yeah, it's got lifelink. I didn't actually see this in any lists until like later on in the week. Like I started seeing it pop up as like a you know two or more of in very like late in the week lists. Uh, yeah, the list that I played was uh, a recent five zero dump, and it had four Ooh, in same. the sideboard. Is that overkill? I kind of think the, the main thing is that I think that the list that I played didn't have enough anti uh, Lotus breach cards. Mm-hmm. And there's a good amount of that running around on online still. Like for example, it did not have the next card on our list, which is Tomic distinguish advocist. I can't believe how they spell this card. Like it looks like, like a, what a metal band perhaps like it's one of Ad- like- advocist. <laughs> Advo- is that what they call lawyers? I think he is supposed to be a distinguished lawyer. Yeah. In Eldraine, they are called advocates. Oh, like someone who advocates. Mm-hmm. Yes. They didn't want to be advocates because that's a, a whole Azorius thing. And so, you know, they need their own identity. But I think it's it's super important. It's a flyer that has static text that makes Lotus Breach unable to target Lotus Bloom. Yeah, specifically, Tomic is a card that reads lands on the battlefield and land cards in graveyards can't be the target of spells or abilities that your opponents control and likewise your opponents can't play lands from graveyards yeah yeah it's just i mean it's a good flyer it's an area it can block in the air it can attack in the air it really invalidates lotus breach pretty well i think it's a it's a value card for sure yep gideon of the trials an awesome popular planeswalker this is one of those cards that like I when it got really low, I was like, everyone should have this card. Yeah. Like, this is just one of those cards that does something completely novel that is going to be important. And then I never got any, and now it's like $13. Yeah. So uh Gideon is a three mana, one white, white planeswalker. It starts with three loyalty. Um, the plus one prevents all damage that a target permanent would deal until your next turn. The uh, one of the zeros is it, you know, the typical Gideon thing becomes a four, four human with indestructible uh, prevents all damage that we dealt to him this turn. And then the perhaps most important is you get an emblem. That's his other zero. You get an emblem with as long as you control a Gideon planeswalker, you can't lose the game and opponents can't win the game. So if Gideon of the trial sticks on the board, uh, then you cannot lose the game no matter what. So that's kind of handy. I never brought this card in. My deck had two in the side and it never felt like it was relevant in the matchups I played. And I'm wondering where you guys think this would be most useful. I mean, number one is inverter. Yeah, for sure. And number two, actually, I think is, you know, it's, I think it's okay against breach, depending on how your sideboard is constructed. Like if you don't have access to other cards it's good. I mean, I, I think that you can bring it in for value in a couple of different situations because it's it can be hard to remove depending on what kind of removal your your opponents have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like with Breach is like they're going to go off and then just bounce it with something. Like they can sort of just uh, wish for a bounce spell and get it off the board and then the emblem is no longer valid. Right. Um, 
but yeah, I think Stan, I think that the it's anti-inverter tech, although I think inverter is starting to respond to that tech. They're, they're having typically more heroes downfall now. And then if you just have one Gideon, a single hero's downfall ends that threat, or if they just attack into it. Um, but you, I think what you're really trying to do is sort of buy time. Like you're trying to race them in order for you to go off before they can remove your Gideon of the trials, right? Um, I think against Breach, Dave, I personally would kind of like use stuff like Deafening Silence, you know, Damping Sphere, or even like Tomic, like you mentioned earlier. I think that also Gideon has some pretty pretty good tech against blue-white control, like every Planeswalker typically does. You know, you get that indestructible creature. They have a hard time removing it. Um, if they're removing all the rest of your creatures, it avoids sweepers. So that's all good stuff. Yeah, believe it or not, in any of my testing for this deck, I didn't get paired against Breach or Inverter. Not once. This is a little surprising. By this time. <laughs> All right, let's talk about some of our overall thoughts on this deck. We've gone through the strategy. We've gone through the parts. We've talked a little bit about how to beat it and what this deck is even sideboarding in against you. Some parting wisdom and reflections in our experience. I'll start. This deck was fun. I absolutely believe that suiting up creatures, turning them sideways, finding tricky little interactions with the creatures and the board uh, was always rewarding. But I walked away from my league and my matches feeling like, despite how fun this deck is, it wasn't really that competitive. And if I had to put it within a, a category, it struck me as the type of deck that you were more likely to encounter at the LGS than at the highest levels of competitive play. And one other point I want to make is the mana in this deck feels so, so good to me that I can't help but think it actually props up the success rate of this deck enough that if, you know, black-white had to deal with the type of mana base that blue-white is left with, that it might not be successful at all. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's hard. Good mana helps, especially with like an aggro deck, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's so weird that so many of the aggro decks, I mean, we've harped on this a bunch of times over the the last month or two that in Pioneer, it's all about the opposing color pairs because of those Kaladesh lands. Like, it's just the only thing that makes a difference. I mean, I, I think that this deck is pretty competitive, but I think it is not broadly competitive. And so in a weird way, I think that this is a meta deck, right? And so let's, you know, I've played a bunch of decks like this you know, I think Prowess is a deck like this. I've talked about Feather a bunch of times. I think Infect is a deck that's kind of like this. Like all of these like small creatures into some kind of buff strategies come with different pluses and minuses. And so just to, you know, when I think about this, the biggest frustrations I found were kind of two things because I want to talk about what you give up by by playing this deck over Feather, for example, in Pioneer. And so by playing Orzhov Auras, you give up the ability to play at instant speed, and you give up the ability to have reach off the top of your deck. And I think that this is something we have not talked about very much yet, but what I mean by that is in Feather, or Prowess for that matter, you have burn cards that extend your reach when you get someone to a low life total to be able to close them out if they kill your creature. And additionally, you have creatures that do not have to be in play for a turn in order to swing in for an attack. Mm -hmm. Because both Feather and prowess prowess and pioneer obviously is not quite the same thing but they have eight haste creatures right and so um 
you can attack, get something off the top of your deck, and maybe have a whole handful of buffs and just be like, okay, I've been waiting for a while, but now's my chance to do it. I drew my 10th District Legionnaire, and now I'm going to swing in with a 6-6 and bolt you and Boros charm you and just kind of like go to town. That was really frustrating for me with this deck because I had to play a threat, have it sit there for a turn, and then get to work. And that gave people a lot of time to respond and recover. And people make a lot of mistakes because they forget about how good of a keyword haste is. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, with the or- or- Orzov deck, you get, like I mentioned earlier, the ability to gain a ton of life. I-, I had a lot of games where my life total was in the 40s, the 30s, and things like that. And you also get the ability to draw a lot of cards, which lets you recover in a different way when someone um, removes your threat. But I think that, personally, most of the time, I would rather play the plan with burn just because... I felt like I got to so many situations where I got my opponent down to four life or six life where if I could go shock into Boros Charm or just sneak in one hit into Boros Charm, the game would just be over and kind of close it. And I think that this deck was designed to play, be played at a PT where we didn't quite understand the way that the metagame was going to evolve at this point in time. Namely, that this deck was designed before Sultai Delirium kind of bust out onto the scene yeah and it's like yul larsen and like the swedish house like they sort of brought the first version of the sultai decks and it's not like yukihiro had any idea that this deck was coming onto the scene yukihiro probably didn't know that this was the deck that was coming up but i think that he was expecting to play against inverter breach spirits and mono red and the deck kind of has plans against all of those sure but much less so against a deck that's black based and also has good value at the same time. I guess my question would have been, I wonder what his plans were against like mono black aggro, which was still a good portion of the metagame at that point. Maybe he was, you know, just hoping to ride the apostle. I can't. Yeah. The apostle of purifying light. Maybe he was just planning to sort of ride that or just be a better player than many of they, you know, those players were and just kind of uh, outrun their removal over time. I think they have worse creatures mm-hmm. than Delirium. They don't block for the most part. Yeah. And they have a little bit less access to removal because they don't draw car- they don't draw as many cards as fast and they don't just run as they don't run anything that recurs their removal spells or is yeah. persistent like creature kill like Liliana is. For sure. Yeah, you have a Liliana, you have four fatal push, you might have somewhat like the drown in the lock things like that in the Saltai decks. There's just plenty of ways to to block and kill things. Eat to extinction. Yeah. Nom, 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 nom. So, I, you know, I think it's, I think right now I would, I would rather go play Boros than this deck, but I think it's fun too. Yeah, I think that's a good summary, Dave, about the differences between those two, like, similar decks and strategies. I think the deck's pretty fun. Like, and I, I just, I spent like 40 bucks finishing it off just because I could imagine having on hand to like mess around with with friends or take to an fnm when i'm feeling a little bit weird but i think more importantly though like you mentioned dave is there's going to be times when this is the deck to bring to a tournament Hmm. like let's say removal is light um this deck's gonna shine like let's say saltai if someone figures out how to hate out saltai maybe there's a lot of life gain maybe there's a lot of uh you know life gain prevention so that they don't get a lot of value off their Uro. Maybe there's a lot of graveyard stuff. So their Uro's getting knocked out of the graveyard. Saltai is like at 5% of the meta and people are trying to combo off. They're trying to maybe do aggro race mono reds back in a big way. This deck is going to be the thing to bring 
to a tournament and really succeed. But right now, like you said, maybe just the fact that there's so much removal, Salt is so prevalent that it might be time to shelve it for a second. So the deck that none of you guys are mentioning that was another comparison in my eyes is Is It in Soul? Cast a one drop, sometimes cast a zero mana ornithopter, and then you get to put pants on that. Plus you have a little bit of recursion with Emery as well as burn from Shrapnel Blast. You even have a counter spell in the form of Metallic Rebuke. So where do you see this being better than the kind of aggro disruption that Insoul offers? That's a good question. I think the one of the main things is life gain. I think that that's one of the ways that you just invalidate every other aggressive strategy. Like Mono Red, what is it Insoul wants to see against Mono Red is like a Shadow Spear, right? Because mm-hmm. it can gain it can gain the life link to try to avoid the tough race that mono red offers what this does is inherently has tons of life gain so you swing they can't do much and you are going to just sort of invalidate what their strategy is trying to do i think one of the things too is that insult doesn't have a great way to make up the disadvantage of having your creature removed like say in response to the scissors right like if you cast out uh, a single mana creature, you untap, you try to cast some scissors on it, they remove that creature. There's nothing that says draw a card because this creature died. Do you know what I mean? You didn't have a SRAM out that gave you a card draw when you cast the install artifact. So you're really relying on a low interactive metagame or a creature-based metagame because your creatures are so much bigger than theirs that I think that that's what the enchantment deck is sort of trying to avoid is saying okay, the synergies here give me some value if uh, I'm losing the one-for-one battle in some way, shape, or form. I'm going to try to make that back up and make your one-for-ones not as good. But I think that the explosiveness is similar. Well, there you have it, folks. We put the pants on. We tried them out. We did that walk in front of the mirror, showed it off to our mom. (laughs) They look good, honey. And she said we can buy them. Bugle boys are awesome. They're back. I'm still more of a Jinko man, but to each his own. Thanks again for our patron, Alex, for working with us on this episode topic. We've even seen a few articles pop up in the last week or so, including today, about this deck. So there's clearly a lot of buzz going on. If this is the type of strategy that speaks to you, maybe you have a lot of cards from it already because you've been drafting a lot of Theros. Check it out. A lot of resources to learn from. It doesn't stop at the dive down. We're just here to join the conversation. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we've got a listener question for our wind down. Stay with us. And we're back. If you listened to our episode last week, there was an MVP who we mentioned a lot, and that was Jack the Judge. And we made a call out on our super secret Slack channel for people to submit questions for today's episode. And Jack's back. And this week, Jack asked us a personal question that we couldn't wait to answer. So maybe you can get to know us a little better. And the question was, what are you all playing for fun if and when you have the time? I think it says something that my mind went quickly to something that wasn't magic 
I think I think Jack was like, "What decks are you playing when you have some like some free time?" But I was like, "Oh man, I'm playing Pokemon with my nephew. It's pretty fun." Like he, uh, I got him a couple of decks for Christmas. We got a couple of like the theme decks, mm-hmm. and uh, we went over the rules. He, of course, had a few rules wrong in his head. Like when he was playing with his friends, uh, he keeps forgetting to draw cards at the beginning of his turn, and I'm like, "Dude, that's the best thing you can do in every card game." Learn it now. Card advantage is king. What's crazy about Pokemon is like, okay, so you can, you cast like these, you basically cast non-creature spells for no mana. Like all of your energy goes on to the creatures to enable their abilities, but then everything else is like free. Like maybe it's like you can only cast one of them a turn. There is a card that just draws three cards for nothing. You just, it's just like, oh, just draw three cards. And it's like just it's just in the decks. It's like okay, this ancestral vision. Dave, are you hearing this? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make me want to play Pokemon anymore. But I was trying to think of a good of a good uh, pun on ancestral recall for like using Mewtwo or something like that. <laughs> um, it's really good. It's 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 there's a lot of like sequencing stuff that's challenging. Like it's about like mm-hmm. you know you have like a bench of Pokemon and then you have to like swap them to the active ones. And like for me, I'm like okay, if I my next four turns are gonna be like this, and he's like, you know, he's thinking in the turn, and so his eight year old brain's got to be a little bit more flexible. What are you guys doing for fun? Well, hold on before before I answer your question, your very loaded question, Shane. It sounds to me like you kind of like Pokemon. Oh, it was fun. The game went really long. Um, like uh, the win con can take a bit of time, and it definitely is like almost Hearthstone-y in terms of like the inevitability of the game is designed, I think, to end once you evolve a Pokemon to be really big. Mm-hmm. Like it's sort of like, and then you just sort of like you get hit, you get him or her out, and it's just like everyone's dead, and you win. Oh, that's a good sound. Didn't you play Pokemon the first time around? Oh yeah, I played I played Pokemon like moderately competitively as like a 16 or 17 year old, like in like gen one, just playing like the broken Blastoise deck. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I remember that deck. I, you know, I'm not a huge Pokemon fan. I haven't played a game of Pokemon in years at this point, but I gotta say, even though it's not nearly as sophisticated as magic, I think it's a very well-designed game and it is absolutely fun, especially to play really casually with some pre-cons. Sure. What have you been into for playing, whether it's Magic or otherwise, Dan? Well, I finally put down Spider-Man for the PS4. Not Spider-Man. Yeah, I beat the game. I beat the DLC. And Whoa. Did you uh, get the silver trophy or whatever? Like, did you plat it? I didn't get 100. That That's really hard to get 100. Um, and the thing to know about me is I love visiting New York City, but I hate staying in New York City. And every time I go to New York, after a few days, I'm just like, get me out of here. And eventually that happened with Spider-Man. So I am right now all in on practicing for SCG regionals, which is in a couple of weeks, trying to mm. basically pick the deck that I want to spend eight or so rounds playing and comp REL events. Um, so yeah, I've been testing a lot of blue, white stone blade, a little bit of, a little bit of uh, blue moon and uh, mono red prowess as well, just to decide what I'm going to have the most fun taking to regionals and also trying to peer pressure me into going to regionals as well yeah and then trying to peer pressure you into buying me some steak at outback i mean that's the easy part i'll do that anytime outback outback get at us we're not kidding when i emailed you that was not a joke (laughs) 
Outback, we have reach. Okay. We'll send you a packet. <laughs> Signed dive downs. Dave, do you play anything besides magic and with your kids? Uh, I do. I mean, I've been doing some weird stuff lately. I've <laughs> been playing Squarespace some for various reasons that we'll talk about at some point in the future. Um, uh, but check it out. Squarespace.com. Squarespace, get at us. You do a lot of, you do a lot of ads. Come and find us. I've got a Squarespace. They're good. My personal portfolio is a Squarespace. And then also, uh, I've been playing this weird game on the Switch called Kentucky Route Zero. Okay. That's sort of this like storytelling game that's a little reminiscent of uh, maybe Zach McCracken or those kind of Lucas Arts games from the 90s. Oh, it's very up your alley then. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty fun and interesting. But honestly, the answer of what I've been playing outside of playing Magic for these podcast episodes is that I've been playing poker. Ooh. And that is what I I have a good game going with some folks here in Chicago where we get together maybe every three or four weeks now. And so we've had a couple of sessions close together. So I have been spending a good amount of time playing poker. I got I to gotta say, Dave, I'm really mad that it took me leaving like two years after I left for you to have like a regular game again. Hey, we, we had a regular game for part of the time that you were here too. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Can I share a little uh, life hack? Sure. A little Stannis, a Stannis hack. Don't, is it don't gamble? <laughs> no, this is back to me. This has nothing to do with poker. Mm. Uh, a buddy of mine gifted me a gaming mouse that has extra programmable buttons. Yeah, those look great. It has changed my life and has made Magic Online so much easier to play. Because what I did is I programmed three buttons to be F1, F2, and F6. And I'm at the point now where I just do not have to touch the keyboard. I can play MTGO with one hand on the couch. And it's just like hmm. RuPaul's Drag Race is on. Is Pet and Andy with the other hand? I'm casting counter spells. It is the life. My cat's on my belly. Everybody's happy. Which mouse is that? Maybe I should get one of these. Oh, there's, there's so many. There's so many gaming mice. There's I, have, so many. I, I use the Logitech G502 Logitech Get At Us. I'm using the Red Dragon. It's like the cheapest one. I think it's called like the 610 or something. I don't know. It's It was like 15 bucks. I'm looking at a Red Dragon right now. Does it have all these lights on it? It's got some lights. <laughs> you, got a cool, you got a cool gaming mice. When your partner is sitting next to you, is she just looking disapprovingly at your weird light up mouse? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she is. Actually, she's looking disapprovingly at my board state. Oh, <laughs> Like, don't tap out for Stoneforge here. What are you doing? Dude, my mouse, Dave, has insertable weights that look like cool little shrukin. You can, like, weight the mouse to your satisfaction. Yeah. So This Red Dragon mouse has 12 buttons on the side of it. 12. Yeah, that's too many buttons. Mine has three. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Boo, boo, wow. Boo, doo, 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 All right, well, Shane's singing again, doo, 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 doo. so I think it's probably time for Stan to save us. All right. I kind of think that might be our new outro music. We'll see what happens once we send this over to the editor. We'll get sued by Schoolhouse Rock. But. All right, Jack. Thanks again for this great question, letting us indulge ourselves a little bit. Because the last two hours weren't enough. True that. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast... Pick our brain on something in Modern or Pioneer. Talk to us about our Patreon tiers. 
talk to us about video games and cheat codes, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can join our Patreon. Or joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel, where you can talk to us every day while we try to look busy at work. Find us over at patreon.com slash the dive down. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring our show. You can sign up for Manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word, just like our show. Get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. And keep an eye out for the return of renting paper magic from Mana Traders right around the corner. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and put on pants! <laughs>